It's day 42 of my self-imposed quarantine, and I'm finally adjusting to the new routine. I get up, I make my bed, I do some yoga, drink some coffee. There's always coffee. And these days, I have more time for reflection, to be grateful for all the things that are blessed in my life, my friends, my family, my health, and in this position, I find myself asking where I can be of greatest service. Today, organizations are considering strategies that account for a global pandemic that's forever changed everything. Many organizations, as a result, are at an, an inflection point. The teams within those organizations must refocus their finite resources on the strategies, programs, and activities that drive their performance, and the leaders that lead those teams have to consider the broader economics of their culture and talent decisions. Here at Thinking Inside the Box podcast, we'll do our part. We'll bring together executives, entrepreneurs, and creatives who share similar values and solve common problems. And we'll complement that with a series of articles that tackle the most pressing issues facing business leaders in our new normal. If you want to support our efforts, please take a moment to rate the podcast. And for access to full-length interviews, please check out bentohr.com or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Until then, be safe. And I'm thinking, maybe people are going to start to say, you know, my quality of life is actually better now, so I don't want to interrupt that. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how employees respond and how they then go back to the workplace and say to the human resource people or to the leaders of that organization, hey, my quality of life actually got better in some ways when we were not here. How can we transfer some of that to how we continue to work in the future? Hey everyone, it's Matt here for another episode of Thinking Inside the Box, the show where each week we tackle the most complex issues related to work and culture. If you're interested in checking out our other content, you can find us at bentohr.com or wherever you find your favorite podcasts by searching Thinking Inside the Box. In today's discussion, we chat with Mari Ryan, an award-winning author, speaker, and workplace well-being strategist that creates healthy, thriving workplaces. Based in Boston, Mari regularly speaks on topics related to employee productivity, well-being strategy, and engagement. The author of Thriving Hive, How People-Centric Workplaces Ignite Engagement and Fuel Results, Mari is uniquely qualified to discuss well-being, how far we've come from those traditional hollow wellness programs to a new era now defined by COVID-19. We had a really cool conversation over the course of 40 plus minutes. I hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, Mari Ryan. Hello, Mari. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Matt. But as we get to today, I'd love to learn a bit more about your background, um, You know what your experience is, both professionally and personally, and what brought you here today. Well, I'm excited to be here today, uh, to where I am today. I've spent my entire career in business and have had a variety of different roles and worked in a number of different industries. So I've worked in sales, marketing, operations, management. I was a trainer for a number of years, and I've worked in 
the insurance industry, high tech, been in all different kinds of businesses. So I consider myself a real generalist in a lot of ways. But a number of years ago, in the actually about 20 years ago, I was consulting as a freelance uh, independent consultant. And I was traveling 100% of the time. I had 3,000 mile weeks and 6,000 mile weeks. And after about two years of this, almost two years of this, I just said, whoa, this life sucks. This is not what I want to do with my life. And I had to just stop. And, you know, I, I wanted to have so many more things that I couldn't have when I was living away from home 100% of the time. And it, uh, it made me really think about where I was in my life and my career and what I wanted to do. And I hired a life coach to work with. And over a couple of years, I managed to find this new area to me called workplace wellness. And I thought, well, this is something I could embrace. It's helping people. It has impact in people's lives. It, it's about workplaces. And I've lived in workplaces since I was 19 or 20 years old. So I think I can get that part down. I just got to learn the wellness piece. And I knew from, you know, sort of the first day that I was in a training program on this, that this was the work I would do for the rest of my career. And that was over 15 years ago. So that's how I got to this place today. And balance that knowledge of, I can absolutely relate to the 3,000 and 6,000 miles sure. peaks. I've had a few of those, never two years in a row. So bravo for, for that level of resilience. Now we find ourselves in a very different situation. We're, most of us are at home mm -hmm. uh, and our travel schedules are in, in measured in steps, not miles. How's that been for you? Well, you know, I'm loving it. I spent five months on the road last year working with clients in two different cities, and I missed the connection that I had and the life that I had at home. Now, granted, you know, being at home and in a lockdown situation is not without being free to roam is a little different than uh, what we would normally expect, but I'm actually thoroughly enjoying it. I'm a person who can keep myself quite content. I have some, I have more hobbies than I have time for even in lockdown. And, you know, I just find that it's a chance to just be able to slow down, re reflect, and really, you know, focus on, on me. And I think that's a really interesting point because if your trajectory around this pandemic has followed mine from an individual perspective, it was that the first few weeks I tried to be as as in service to as many people as possible. And we, at that point in time, the kind of the time horizon of this event was unclear. Um, in fact, the scope was unclear. So um, it was very much a kind of a reactive mode. And I was working a lot with HR leaders and business leaders who were very much making decisions hour by hour without complete information. And it's now evolved to from hour to hour to day to day to week to week, now to month to month. And the kind of the new reality, if you will, for a lot of people is starting to take shape. I'm curious, have you given any thought to uh, you know, what the new normal looks like for you or for the people that you work with and interact with? I have. I've actually been giving this a lot of thought because it's going to be very different. In many ways, I reflect on this as very similar to what we went through after 9-11, when many things about our lives changed. Now, now, granted, everybody's day in and day out life didn't change, but I was still actually traveling at that same time. On, on the day of 9-11, I was literally you know, wait, uh, packing to get on a plane to go off and start a, a many-month assignment. And it, there were things that we now you know, take for granted as, as the life we live when we travel, when we go through airports, you know, the levels of security we see in, very, you know, in different places. 
we're going to have a new type of life like that following this pandemic and for, you know, possibly forever where we will have far more focus on our health. We'll have focus on cleanliness, you know, disinfecting the workplace. You know, when I think about what goes into consideration to just get people back into offices is is the number of steps and the preparation and the investments that employers are going to have to make just to get people back to work in the offices. You know, it's part of the reason this is going to be such a phased approach because for many employers, it's going to take them some time to put in place all of the things that they're going to need to do to get people back. Or the question becomes whether people even want to come back. There's always that thought too. They don't miss the commute. Yeah, they don't. They, they do not. The, the dress code is a lot more friendly at home. Exactly. You know, I, I live I live near Boston. And, you know, so this is a big city with terrible traffic. And the local newspaper, the Boston Globe, had this big series about how bad the traffic is here. And I'm thinking, you know, now when I listen to the radio and it's 10 minutes for the one end of the expressway to the other when it used to be, you know, an hour kind of commute. And I'm thinking maybe people are going to start to say, you know, my quality of life is actually better now. So I don't want to interrupt that. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how employees respond and how they then go back to the workplace and say to the human resource people or to the leaders of that organization, hey, my quality of life actually got better in some ways when we were not here. How can we transfer some of that to how we continue to work in the future? And I think that's an important discussion for a few reasons. I think it's the confluence of a number of different factors that you mentioned. So I think the conversation around, do I want to go back to, to a physical workplace or work from home or work from an island some, is something that's been happening in the background for decades. And it was increasing in viability as platforms like Upwork and Freelancer and organizations themselves became more comfortable with the idea of working with people who may not be tethered to a desk from 9am to 5pm Monday to Friday. Clearly, this change has accelerated that path for both organizations and individuals, as you mentioned. And, you know, the, 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 the discussion you brought up is multifaceted insofar as you're going to have to have conversations with employees who may not want to come back to the workplace, either because of preference around work-life integration, and as you mentioned, quality of life, commuting, things of that nature. They may have a tough time adjusting back to a nine-to-five schedule because they've become accustomed to now working maybe non-traditional hours, putting in the same amount of time, albeit, but but working non-traditional hours to balance things like childcare or elder care or self-care. That's one of the beauties of kind of being in this time is that we have that level of of work-life integration that we've been talking about for so long, and now we have no other option but to try and make it work. And as a function of that, I think we're getting better at it, and I think organizations are waking up to the reality that they can trust people to produce even when they're not physically in the location that is assigned to them, that if they provide them with the tools and the resources and the support that they need from leaders and coaches and 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 collaborators, whether they're internal or external, that they can produce really good work and have a lot of success and and enjoy the work. And I think about, you know, how that's so important in a knowledge-based economy where it's, you don't need to have physical oversight of your employees anymore. The work is less tangible and therefore the things that people need are less tangible. And I get really excited about the prospects of that. And I also, to your point, 
Think about the organizations that have to bring people back into the workplace for whatever reason or choose to, or for the employees that prefer to go back to the workplace, because there are many people during this time that are that are craving that, that inter-office connection. They're extroverted and maybe they're living at home right now by themselves. They're not having the interactions that they normally would. And how do we create safe spaces for those folks to be able to interact and collaborate and not create stigma inside the organization, you know, and, you know, I worry about the first time we bring people back to the office and someone has the sniffles, like, well, what is, what happens there? Like, you know, the very basic type questions that are going to pose many different unique challenges for leaders and organizations. Uh, and I think I don't have the answer to these questions, but I think now is the time to deploy a lot of empathy because we're all figuring this out together and we're going to have to learn as we go. And that is an interesting journey in and of itself. Well, I think you nailed it, Matt, because there are so many questions and so many different approaches that could possibly, different directions in which we could move with some of this. And it really comes down to the extent to which employers are willing to trust their employees. You know, as you say, there's, you know, I'm just reading the newspaper today about, you know, managers who have this software that they can, you know, monitor how much time people are spending online and, you know, the, the big brother kinds of aspects of this. But I think when employers really trust their employees and when they, you know, can produce the results that they are, you know, are expecting, when employees produce the results that are expected of them, that it's, it's less that work is about a physical location and work is more about the processes, the tasks, the methods of communication, and not so much the physical place. But I'm finding, and in speaking with many managers who aren't ready for that, you know, they're, they're having a hard time of letting go of the seeing people in seats and knowing that the work is getting done. And I think that mindset and that is going to be the biggest thing that's going to have to really change in order for some of this to be successful going forward. I think you're absolutely right. And I think this concept of workplace well-being comes into play in a more meaningful way. As you think about the workplace of the future and think about the integration of all those factors, as somebody who spent a lot of their career and a lot of their energy and passions in, in dissecting and in examining workplace well-being, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you think about the current state of affairs and some of the things that you're thinking about, you know, from a well-being perspective going forward. Sure. Well, you know, when we think about workplace well-being, it's actually a very broad topic in a lot of ways. You know, when when I first started in this field over 15 years ago or so, you know, we called it wellness. It was worksite wellness. And it was mostly about, you know, your physical being, you know, how much you eat and how much you weigh and do you use tobacco and how often you exercise. And physical wellness is obviously still a, an important dimension of this. But beyond physical wellness, the aspects that have really come to evolve and part of this came from the work of the Gallup organization and Tom Rath is the author of, of, of a number of pieces from Gallup, and he developed a model that had five dimensions to it. So the physical piece, which I call energy, is certainly a core piece of that. Financial well-being is another element of that. We all, you know, all know that if our financial life is out of whack, then our whole life is out of whack. So financial well-being is a, is a core part of well-being. Community and connection. So how we connect with people both in the workplace, in the relationships we have in our lives, and in the communities in which we live. And then the fifth dimension in his model is purpose. So 
what do we have as purpose as individuals and how do we live that purpose? What motivates us to get out of bed and to keep us going every day? I've added a sixth element to that, which is environment, because the physical environment, and this is going to be very prevalent post-pandemic, of, of the physical environment is, is a, an important element. You know, the light that you have and the, the physical layout and your ability to be able to move around and have access to open space within the workplace. So some of those elements around the physical environment are important. And as we think about all of these things in the workplace, there's so much about the employee experience that are based on some of these elements of well-being. So as we start to think about where we, we move ahead, the one thing we have to be recognizing right now is that People are, if we think of this, Matt, in the context of Maslow's hierarchy, Maslow's pyramid, the place that people are right now for many individuals is really at the base of that pyramid. For some folks, they're their livelihood has been threatened. Their shelter, you know, they don't know how to, they may not have enough money to, to pay the rent or pay the mortgage. They may not have access to, to food on a regular basis to feed their family. So we are really at a very base level and have to be aware of that and the amount of stress that that's causing for people. And, and we, when we think about how we progress over time and how we, we move forward, we really need to be considering that we're we've taken a real step backwards. You know, we're no longer worried so much about, you know, self-actualization. We're really worried about basics. So I think employers really have to be thinking about that as as they think about what the needs of their workforce are. So well-being is fairly broad in in that way. And it's important for us to, to remember that. And I love how you described its evolution because that's exactly been my experience as we've started to take a more broad view to well-being. It no longer becomes prescriptive, but becomes much more integrated. It becomes more, much more design thinking insofar as that the employees are playing a role in helping create a future and manifest a future within an organization. And I get really excited about that going forward as we seek to redefine the future workplace. And you've referenced it in a few different ways, whether it's the integration of the physical space and the virtual space, whether it's the integration of different disciplines working all on the same project. I get excited about the opportunity for us to really come together in a more interconnected way, but it may look different because as you've mentioned a few times, the, the, the physical space that we now coexist in will have to be changed will have to be redefined in order for us to have that level of both well-being, but also collaboration. But I also think that the network, the, the, the second network, the third network will become closer because we'll learn to work in a more integrated way with one another. And just because we don't have that physical connection five days a week, we'll be able to replace portions of that, at least virtually, um, and then really cherish those opportunities for us to kind of come together in, in those spaces. I know that an area for you that's particularly important is quantification, which traditionally isn't something we talk a lot about in the context of well-being. We talk a lot about the qualitative aspects of well-being. We have we make moral arguments and we speak about personal experiences and feelings, all of which are very valid, but they struggle to get traction in corporate environments in some cases. Quantification, however, is, is a language spoken by nearly every organization. How did you stumble upon that? insofar as your own research and your own work? And why does it play such an important role in the work that you do? 
Oh, I love this question, Matt. Thank you for asking this because it's a place you and I have a lot of common interests. Hey, everyone. It's Matt here. I hope you're enjoying the show. Before we continue, I wanted to give a quick shout out to one of our sponsors, Benji. The future of work is today. And Matt Parsons and the team at Benji have figured out a really cool hands-on learning solution that you need to be considering as you transition your organizational learning and team building and engagement online. Now, I spend several hours a day myself on video platforms. So whether it's Zoom or Skype or GoToMeeting, they're great. They allow me to interact with people and see them in all parts of the world. Though if you're like me, once those calls go on a bit too long, I start to get a little bit distracted. And it's not too long before I'm reaching for my smartphone or opening up another tab on my laptop. That doesn't happen with Benji. They have a catalog of interactive team exercises that makes it really easy for organizations and individual consultants to develop engaging solutions at any scale. And I'll be honest, I've been so impressed with the tool myself that we're actually looking at using Benji to power our virtual workshops with client-facing products. So I'm actually working right now with Matt one-on-one to develop a journey mapping exercise so we can take clients through the employee experience and illuminate thousands of dollars and hours of inefficiencies that organizations tend to have in their onboarding and hiring processes. It's a great tool. And Because you are a listener of the Thinking Inside the Box podcast, you're going to get a special benefit as well. I've talked to Matt. He wants to give as many people as possible access to this tool so they can make online learning more engaging. And you can do so as well by using the discount code BENTO20. So if you log on to the Benji website, which is mybenji.com, and you're as impressed with the solution as I am, then enter the code in BENJI20 and you'll receive 20% off your purchase. And with that being said, we'll return back to regular programming. The way that I stumbled on this really goes to my business background and the fact that having spent my entire career in business, I recognize, you know, what it takes to run a business and, you know, how leaders think and how managers think. And we know that that's done through two core elements. One is having a plan. And then the second piece is having a way to measure that plan. And when I actually came to this field, I found that one of the places that I was just so surprised in in many ways, but was stumped by this, was that people didn't have plans for their wellness initiatives or their well-being initiatives. They were just kind of doing things. And I was like, well, why are you doing that? Why did you choose to do that? And they would say, well, we just thought that's what people might like to do, having no data to, to inform that decision. So strategic planning is one of the hallmarks of my work because I know that in order to be successful, it's something you have to have a plan. And so naturally, evaluation and measurement came out of the need and the awareness around planning is if we have goals and we have objectives, how are we going to measure that we are meeting those? So I've really worked at, um, this is another you know key area of interest for me in a place that I, I speak a lot, is around this concept of how do we measure well-being? And when again, you know, we go back to that model that has multiple elements to it, there's different ways in every element of that. And when we think about this from how human resource leaders measure in their organization, there are a lot of metrics that are already 
evident within managing human resources within an organization that can also be indicators for well-being. You know, when we talk about employee engagement, when we talk about uh, retention, you know, when we talk about how easy it is to to attract the kind of people from a talent management perspective and recruiting, are you able to attract the kind of people that you need in your organization to be able to meet your objectives? And that's how, you know, so I'm really just thinking about it from a, a business perspective. So just so I'm clear, your approach to quantification really is looking at the broad metrics or operational KPIs or people analytics that form a a broader narrative around well-being? Absolutely. Let me give you a couple of examples. A number of years ago, I was working with some smaller organizations on a a capacity building program to help them build their plans in their organizations. And these programs are a little bit unusual because smaller organizations typically don't have these kinds of resources available to them. And in the process of doing this, one of the human resource managers noticed that there were increasing numbers of loans against 401ks by her employees. And that was a message to her that there was financial stress that people were experiencing because this was a significant increase. That's an indicator. Now, that's just one of those, you know, statistics that's buried someplace in, you know, the human resource, you know, information and when I ask for it, when I'm doing work with a client, and that's part of the assessment process is gathering, you know, facts around these kinds of things. And they they look at me and go, why would you want to know that? And it's like, that's a direct indicator of you can have a, a number of people in your workforce who are experiencing financial stress, or maybe they don't have the financial skills to the, the skills they need to be able to manage their financial lives. Those can be indicators that can be used to help prioritize programming and, you know, the way that you focus your programs in, in your initiative. So that's just an example of how one, one factoid, one piece of data can be used to be able to, to inform some elements of, of how you can design a program. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think if, if nothing else, it provides a really good impetus for HR professionals that traditionally have struggled to adopt an analytics approach to their practice. I think about my experience within HR and I think about my relationship with data. And when I first started in this profession, I was really interested in data from uh, the sense that it was a complementary aspect to a business case that could be blended with the qualitative. Exactly. My experience in business started in operations. So I come from a business background. So when I came into HR, I already had kind of that broader business lens in approaching the profession. And then as I stayed in the profession, that that never went away. Uh, we, we, we've bonded on this, Mari, because my background, like yours, is really around quantification as, a, as an impetus to create more human-centric workplaces. Exactly. And I talk a lot about data and technology and processes, and not because I'm a data scientist or a technologist or really like love getting into the deep principles of agile methodologies. However, I know that they are the flow through to a better existence. I know that the majority of HR professionals and majority of organizations have underfunded their workforce infrastructure, um, are resource constrained, are having to adopt and adapt their business model, certainly for the 21st century and now again for COVID-19, although I'll probably on a more accelerated schedule. And I ask myself, how do we give them breathing room? How do we give them space within their organizations to be able to 
if nothing else, preserve what they have in an environment where revenues probably dropped, where future revenues are in jeopardy, um, where you may have had to expend additional resources to you know, transfer your workforce into a virtual setting. I, I've talked to companies who've invested thousands, if not millions of dollars in technologies and laptops and, and accesses for so individuals can work from home or work remotely. Uh, those were, of course, not budgeted and have to be paid for some way. I think about all those, cha- all those challenges coming together and I go, wow, that's a really tough spot to be in for an organization because you're having to build the plane while you fly it and you don't have the resources you had yesterday to do it. So, in, in the context of this, I, I look at quantification as an opportunity for us to illuminate the opportunities that we have in front of us. And if nothing else, we have the opportunity to know where we want to, where we are and where we want to be. And when I think about things like wellness, it's a great, if you will, great vehicle to attach your intentions to. For example, if you're looking at a broad spectrum of KPIs around well-being and you're looking at attrition and you're looking at engagement and you're looking at learning retention or you're looking at your inclusion index, if you have different matrices that you're, you're assessing, you can create a either consolidated score or even keep them separate and then directionally move towards improvements in those areas by making enhancements in your business, infrastructure, restructurings in service to not only helping you survive this very challenging period of time financially, but also long-term to build more towards this model of well-being. And you, you can do both. I think people have been reacting and they have been out of necessity. But as we look a bit further down the road, we're starting to get a sense of this is the new reality. And we can start to make more pragmatic and thoughtful decisions. And those decisions, if they're intentionally architected, can also include an element of wellness, well-being, diversity and inclusion, engagement. Because, and this is where I get really excited about quantification, the science supports it. The science supports a, uh, an organization that reinforces well-being. They have proven to be more financially viable. They've proven to be able to return more on investments. They've been proven to be able to sustain market fluctuations. So organizations are incentivized to do this for a whole bunch of reasons. And I'm curious, in your conversations with, with people that you're interacting with in your sphere, what is the narrative? What, what is kind of the go-forward thought process around well-being in workplaces? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a great question, and I think it's an important one at this point because the world has stopped to pay attention to our health for, for really the first time in 100, you know, over 100 years. And it, there's, I think, a new realization and recognition of the importance of what it means to be healthy and the impact it has to our lives, to our economy, you know, to everything that we've known as our normal lives. And I think now as managers move forward, as, as HR leaders move forward and as leaders move forward in their decision making, I think they have to use a similar model to what's been encouraged within this pandemic situation is let's work with the facts. What is it that we know? Let's use the data to be able to help us drive the decisions. And in this case, it's another place and I think a huge opportunity to be able to include the employees in that conversation is really asking the employees, what do they need? What's important to them? How do they feel? You know, all of these things that are going to be essential to helping them understand how they're going to have to prioritize moving forward and what they're going to have to change. One of my clients has just initiated an employee survey 
and they don't tend to do a lot of, you know, they have their sort of standard surveys they do over time, but they, they did a special one at this point, really because they wanted to understand the extent to which employees felt supported and cared for and communicated to through this process. And they, it's been interesting because there were some preliminary results last week, and, and they said in a lot of the comments, what they were commenting about was the visibility of the well-being initiatives and programs that were made available in the workforce. So I think it's going to take a different, it's going to take a different approach because health and safety are now going to be forefront in the workplace, even in offices where, you know, they might not have been before. We're going to be much, much more aware of disinfecting and cleaning and touching surfaces and just and wearing masks and all those things that we're going to have to do in, in the new world that we're going to be entering once we are free to roam. And I think it's going to take a, a real, it's, it's going to take time for, for leaders and managers to really assess the, their, their situation, how their team feels about this, so that they, the people can actually have their employees can have some input in this. So they really feel they're part of the process which is going to be just so, so, so important going forward for a, a number of reasons. It's, it's going to be a challenge. And we mentioned this before. I hope that leaders and organizations take the opportunity to continue to deploy empathy. I saw a lot of examples of that in the days and weeks during this pandemic. And I hope we see more examples of that. I hope that the, the improvements that we're seeing in organizations around inclusion and having diverse workforces continue, and if not accelerate, as we seek to find a new normal, but also gain a greater understanding of the things that actually are important. We, at the end of the day, I think have gained a greater appreciation of the integrated nature of society, certainly economically, but society speaking, we all rely on each other to a certain degree. And we all are in service to one another in a certain degree. And this is the opportunity for us to redefine those relationships, as you've mentioned, but to strengthen them as well, because we no longer have the option of saying, I'm taking my ball and going home in the course of a pandemic. It just doesn't work like that. And you need to be thinking about not only what's in your best interest, but also how what your best interests, how they affect broader society. Because uh, in some cases, you, you can place people very really at risk and, and you want to, of course, avoid that in all situations. And you also want to be respectful to people and, and being able to do what you can for individuals. So it's, it's a difficult balance to strike. And I, I don't envy organizations who are going to be challenged in the future, trying to balance those different types of considerations. I also don't I also don't envy regulators who are going to have to think through employment law considerations and workplace safety considerations as we seek to define you know, what a new normal looks like and you know whether this lasts you know much further in the future. There's going to have to be some considerations to how we handle events like this going forward because now we can't say that it's never happened and we we don't know what it's like. We, we will have to develop plans. We're going to have to develop mitigation strategies. We're going to have to be able to have some form of playbook that we can pull out when, if this, when and if this happens again. And I think about that because I think about making sure that we don't normalize the wrong kind of behaviors and that we don't, to your earlier point, simply shift what I would characterize as some unproductive management behaviors, i.e. micromanagement. We don't just shift it virtually. 
I get really nervous about, you know, monitoring people's time on screen and what they've been viewing. And like, I just get, to me, it just seems like a complete waste of time. And, and maybe I'm differently wired and I, and I'm certainly biased because I despise micromanagement from my perspective. There's nothing I value more than my freedom and my autonomy. So whenever somebody tries to c- kind of constrain that, I'll look for ways to get out of it <laughs> and, and increasingly creative ways to get, <laughs> to get out of it. It's, I, I want to make sure that people take the opportunity to look at the full picture and it, it's going to be a challenging period of time. No doubt. No doubt. You're right. There's, it's going to be challenging. We don't have playbooks, so we're write, writing them as we go. And I think what we're saying is that, at least what I'm saying, is that we want to try and avoid a future whereby a, the toxic culture becomes the norm, but in a different modality. And I know, Mari, that's an area that you've been spending a lot of time thinking about and writing about and creating about that organizational culture of the future. I'd love your thoughts on that. Well, it's, it's interesting, Matt, because I wrote a whole book about that. My book is called The Thriving Hive, and the subtitle is How People-Centric Organizations Ignite Engagement and Fuel Results. And the idea there is really how, you know, when we think about a culture in the workplace, how does the culture nurture and support people and help them connect to a purpose in that organization that's, you know, the organization's purpose that is outward facing and motivational and something that contributes to the overall good of the world, as opposed to the, you know, the type of workplace that I learned about in business school, which was it's all about profit, it's all about making money, it's all about fulfilling the needs and interests of the, you know, shareholders. And our world is not that today, you know, that while I learned that in business school, it's not the world we live in today. Today, we have many shareholders and many stakeholders, and we have to be looking after, the culture has to look after all of those stakeholders. And I think we're really seeing that today in this pandemic world where those organizations that really are committed to a purpose and are looking after not only their employees, they're looking after, you know, the people that are their suppliers, you know, they're looking across their whole ecosystem and making sure that is meant as much as they can within their control, that they can keep all of that intact. And that's where the culture of an organization that really has, is, you know, based on purpose, it's it's grounded in values, and it really is translates that into the culture of the organization. And I love that perspective because it distills down a very complex set of you know, circumstances into the intentionality behind creating the organization of the future. And in doing so, we, we really make it clear to organizations what they should be aspiring to, and we give them the roadmap on how to follow the template that we know to, to work. I, I have the same experiences that you do. Business school taught me that we were in service to the shareholder and that it, when forced to make tough decisions, you'd make decisions that were in the best financial interest of the enterprise. I also agree with you that that is an over, sim, overly simplified model at the best of times and becomes even more stark when we all clearly are facing a situation such as COVID-19 I also love your comment with respect to the link between culture and economics. As somebody who often spends more time digging for the root cause and less time talking about symptoms, I do think that the historical economic model, the the Wall Street model of the sole fiduciary responsibility of your board members is to, you know, 
continue to enrich shareholders, that there is no other considerations, and that they are legally bound to do that speaks to a different time and speaks to a different reality. And we may need to look at how that is how that is constructed going forward. Uh, and we don't have to look too far to find a model in Western Europe and Germany and specifically that board members have a shared responsibility, both to the shareholder, but also to the longevity of the firm, which in and of itself necessitates a longer term view. When you think about your firm in the context of the broader national economics or your, you know, what service you have to your shareholders, to your employees, you know, just in and of itself, that's that, that very small, but material tweak to how they view enterprise completely changes the dynamic. And for us here, we can talk about making changes inside of organizations and we can talk about developing the next generation of leaders and, and putting in technology to do that and, and really reinforcing well-being. All those things need to happen and should happen. And they will only be further enhanced if we look at the, the very much the constructs in which they operate. Mari, I want to thank you so much for your time today. I know you're busy. I know you have a lot going on in terms of helping clients that are going through challenges. And I've really enjoyed recently your content. So I'm going to link not only access to your more recent content, but certainly to your book in the show notes. This was a really great conversation. I want to thank you so much for taking the time today. And I want to wish you, your family and friends, nothing but health and happiness and as much wellness as you can find and well-being as you can find in these trying times. Thanks, Matt. It was really fun to be here today. Thank you. At Vento HR, we enable your HR strategy with custom HR technology procurement, implementations, and integrations to liberate your team from administration, enhance their productivity and experience, to position them at the center of your organization's transformation, where they belong. With experience as an HR executive myself, I have a real appreciation of the challenges facing today's HR leaders. The world is changing. Your industry is being disrupted. Your organization is transforming. And all the while, you're trying to do more with less. You're being asked to simultaneously model fiscal restraint while the expectations of your departments are only increasing. At Bento HR, we can support you at every stage of your transformation. From architecting the strategy to developing and selling the business case internally, we support procurement, implementations, and ongoing sustainment. And we tie it all together with a deep knowledge of the HR profession. And over six decades of combined experiences from our founding team, who has worked in or supported large HR organizations across multiple industries, including, but not limited to, financial services, technology, retail, transportation, and healthcare. Check out Bento HR today to build your very own Bento box, which doubles as your business case for transformation. Leveraging recent research into the upside of digital automation inside organizations, and with your help in answering a few simple questions related to your organization, our Bento Builder will provide a directional business case for change. So log on to www.bentohr.com and build your Bento box today.